Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, in the first of our shows for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize, shortlisted authors Kathy Rensenbrink and Alex Phoebe. Kathy Rensenbrink was born in Cornwall, grew up in Yorkshire and now lives in London. She's an ex-bookseller and also formerly project director of the charity Quick Reads, and she's books editor of the Bookseller magazine, and author of The Last Act of Love, which we're going to be talking about now, which has been shortlisted for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize. Kathy, thanks for talking to Little Adams. That's a pleasure. Give us a brief description of what The Last Act of Love is about. So it's about the life and long death of my brother, who we were growing up in Yorkshire very happily, and then he was knocked over by a car and he didn't die um, when he was knocked over. He was alive for another eight years in what we learned to realise was a persistent vegetative state. So the book really is me talking about what happened to him but also what happened to the rest of us because I think it's a terrible thing really to do. It obviously only can happen now in modern times. If his accident had happened 20 or 10 years before, he'd have just died that night. But we have this rather terrible ability now to keep people alive beyond which life has value. So it's all about that. And indeed, there's a point in the book where the doctor who explicitly says he saved his life, but that might not have been a good thing. Yes, and of course at the time we just so desperately wanted his life to be saved and we completely sort of believed in miracles and believed in his his sort of strength and brilliance and believed that our love for him would be able to in some way magically reverse his extreme brain damage. But of course that wasn't the way and I think it's very difficult it's a very difficult situation for surgeons to be in because I think unless you had really detailed knowledge, you know, unless you were a medical person or had seen somebody in this condition, if you were asked the question, you know, we might be able to save your loved one's life but we don't know what condition they'll be in I think you would just say, oh, yes, yes, save their life. And you would believe in the possibility of a miracle. And it's, that, that's what it, it's actually called. I've read a report that calls it the miracle mindset because you, you expect that miracles will happen. And, of course, we're used to that because if you ever see anything about coma on, you know, on telly or in a novel, it's always a very romanticised picture. Someone's pretty much always about to wake up and say, oh, what happened? And I'm OK. So it's very much in our culture that the outcome will be positive. Matthew, your brother, give us a sense of him, who he was. 
He was extremely tall, which I always feel was quite relevant to his personality. He was six foot four. He was nine inches taller than me. He was also, he was extremely bright, very clever, but also very sporty. He's a big all-rounder and he was very funny and he was rather mischievous. So he would quite often, you know, because he was so big, he used to, <laughs> he did used to sort of like boss me about and push me around a bit. And also he'd kind of catch me in his extremely long arms and I wouldn't be able to escape. He was very funny. We liked things like Faulty Towers and Blackadder and we spent a lot of time quoting them at each other. And he had, we lived in this pub in Yorkshire and there was a low back roof, a single story extension. And he, he could, he just lift himself up onto it. He's just, he could reach out his arms and lift himself up onto this roof. And then he'd walk across the roof and sort of appear suddenly at the, at the window of the, of the top bit where we lived. And that was always funny. And he had loads of friends, as we both did. I think life was very good. He was very interested in science and maths whereas I was more interested in arts and English. So we were quite different in that way. And he was very logical and I was very emotional. And we always felt that because our father is Irish and our mother is English. And we definitely, you know, I seem to have inherited all our dad's sort of, you know, open-hearted, emotional noisiness. And he was, he was a bit more sort of Anglo-Saxon logical like our mother. And you were very close in age, weren't you? Yes, yeah, so I was the older by 13 months. And we got on really well. And I think partly it was possibly because we were a bit different in our area. So, you know, so we'd moved up to Yorkshire and we lived in Yorkshire. And um, but we were a bit strange in our village because our dad was Irish, which of course now is a nice thing. But in the 70s, people were still very suspicious and difficult around Irish people. And he was covered in tattoos and he couldn't really read and write. And then our mum was, you know, went to work in a suit, which was that, you know, it was fairly unusual. You know, only teachers, really. There were a few teachers. So they were an odd couple, my parents. So I think we definitely, we kind of had a different experience from the other kids that were growing up around us. And that's possibly why we were so close to each other. And then it turned out to be quite a good thing. We went to the same school, which is just a school in our village. And then when it was GCSE time for him, the school decided they weren't going to offer three science GCSEs, that they were just going to make a general course called science. And because my brother liked science so much, he didn't want to do that. So he moved schools to the next village. And actually, I think that was a really good thing because it kind of just put a bit of distance between us. And then we enjoyed, because we went at school all the time all together, I think we were kind of more excited to see each other at the end of the day and weekends. And also, he'd always thought of himself as not being very good at English, I think probably because he'd been in my shadow. But when he went to his new school, he was top of the class quite quickly. So I think it was quite good for him not to always be being compared to me anymore as the elder. And that was, yeah, and that was nice. And then he made loads more new friends, all of whom I liked. So we just had a very social thing. And our parents as well were... Our house was always full of people. All our friends would come and stay. We were always taking extra people on holiday with us. It was all sort of very idyllic and jolly, and we were having a great time, really. What do you remember of the night of the accident? Well, we'd been we'd been working behind the bar in our parents' pub, and then part of the deal when we did this was we got paid, but also our mum would give us a lift down to a place which was just about a mile and a half outside the village. It was called The Rainbow, and it's not there anymore. But it was called The Rainbow, and it was like a pool hall, and it had a disco. So our mum drove us down there, and we kind of hung around together a bit, and Matty was also doing work experience at Jack's Power Station. 
So he was extremely rich. We thought he was so well off and he was buying the drinks in a very sort of, you know, big brotherly way, which was very sweet. And and then what I mainly remember was that I, I just had enough at some point, didn't want, you know, he was just ready to go home. And one of our customers offered me a lift home and I went to ask Matt if he wanted to come with me. And he said, no, he said, I'll hang around here. And he said, um, he said, I might get lucky. And I just kind of threw him a look, uh, you know, because that's so arrogant, because he was a bit arrogant. And I just walked out of the place. And then the next time I saw him, he was lying in the road. And so he'd walked home, not long after I'd left, actually, he'd walked home with a couple of girls, and then he'd been knocked over. And the car that was behind the car that knocked him over stopped, and then phoned an ambulance from the edge of our village, because, of course, it was all before mobile phones, and then came on to the pub and drove drove into the car park of the pub and started shouting in the car park, so I opened my bedroom window and he said, does Matthew Minton live here? And I said, yes. He said, you better come then, he's in trouble. So I just went and I didn't wake my parents up, which afterwards I couldn't quite work out why I'd done that. Except I think in trouble, I just thought it was something that I'd be able to sort out, you know, some little scrape thing. I just certainly had no, I just had no idea of the scale of what had happened. And then when we got there and I was kneeling next to him in the road and I realised, Straight away, I should have woken my parents up, but it was kind of too late. And the ambulance arrived, and I went in the ambulance with him. And I remember the man, the ambulance man, saying, "We've got a bad one here on the radio." And I could tell from the way the ambulance men were behaving that they thought it was really serious. I could tell by their manner that they thought this was a very serious thing. And so, what was what was the first? I mean, I guess the first few days, even weeks, of Matthew being in hospital. When you're in that period of time that you described earlier as being the period of time when you think he could get better. Yeah, I mean, we we hoped he would get better for ages. I think I think it was really a couple of years before I accepted that he wouldn't, because of course I was so hopeful. And I often think I used to think a lot about what what would have happened if things had happened the other way around. And for ages, I thought it would have been much better for everybody if if it had been me, which I know is something that siblings often there's a lot of survivor guilt comes with sibling loss, and siblings often think it'd have been better if it had been the other way around. But one of the things I do think sort of would have been better, but I think if Matty had been there, if he wasn't the one lying, unable to say anything, if he'd been there, I think he'd have just asked better questions. I think he'd have understood what was going on. He quite wanted to be a surgeon. You know, he's really interested in medicine. And I think that I just threw huge amounts of, sort of love and faith at the situation. I didn't really ever ask any sensible questions. I don't think we ever asked anything like, how many people does this happen to? How many people make some kind of recovery? How many people survive? I just don't think we asked those sorts of questions. We just threw ourselves into this belief that if we all worked hard enough and talked to him enough and hoped enough, that somehow he would get better. And of course, it is difficult with head injuries because there is a certain there's a degree to which people don't really know, except they do. You know, they do know stuff, and they know it after a while. All people say at the beginning is, "We don't know what will happen." Um, but when I speak to people now, when I talk to medical people now, they tell me that actually, you know, very quickly everybody would have had a pretty good idea of what was going on. But you know, they didn't really tell us, or we didn't want to listen. My mum remembers a time, sort of a few months in, Matty caught some sort of infection, and she remembers realising that the medical person was kind of saying to her, "Do you want us to treat this?" And at that time, she was she was aghast at the thought that they might think that we wanted Matty to die. But of course now, with all this hindsight, I see that it would have been 
much better, really. Because the way I look at it now is that, you know, my brother's life came to an end on that road. And that was obviously an awful, awful, awful tragedy. But then the, the eight years that followed was the thing that I think really sort of damaged everybody around him as well. In those first few weeks, again, I was gonna—I mean, I was gonna say, how were you coping with it? But of course, that's really not happening. That's the story of this book. You weren't coping at all, were you? Well, no. Except, I mean, in the beginning, I think I coped really brilliantly because actually, I am quite good in the crisis, and it was a crisis, and there was lots to be done. So I was staying at the hospital with Matty. I was talking to him all the time. I was learning how to look after him. We all were learning how to look after him. I was cleaning his teeth with these special little funny sponges. I really didn't want him to be bored because, again, I'd comp- in my mind, I'd completely thought that, may- you know, I always assumed that maybe he un- did understand everything. So I was making tapes for him of music and tapes for him of me talking and telling him endless stories. And, again, because there was all this hope, I just, I don't know, I suppose it would have been almost disloyal to see it as a particularly bad thing. But then... Obviously, as time went on, I can see now that probably, I, whilst I didn't accept myself, even to myself for a couple of years, that he wasn't going to get better. Obviously, I must have I must have been putting quite a lot of energy into refusing to believe that for quite a long time. But also at the same time, what I'm all meant was, while you are dealing with looking after Matthew, you're not taking care of yourself. No, I mean, life had just completely and utterly and irrevocably changed. But again, I'm not sure how much I realised that. I don't think I clocked it. Whereas I now think, now I think I sort of wish somebody had said that to me. I wish somebody had said, you know, look, every, everything has changed. There's no point in moping after what how life used to be. Everything has changed. Because, it, I mean, it does just amaze me to look back on it and just see that absolute sort of cruelty just in a, mo- in a moment, what life had been like and then what life became. I mean, I think my parents tried really hard to make things as good for me as they as was possible you know and I was at sixth form college and I really didn't want to go back because I just thought Matty needed me and he needed me for his rehabilitation but I think my mum thought that wouldn't be a good idea so she sort of broke a deal with college where I could resit the lower six and basically just go whenever I wanted you know not be under any I think I think it's quite smart just that she sort of kept me in the system whereas actually I just wanted to get out and get rid of everything um i found friendships very difficult because i just didn't have any i felt really marked out by what happened i couldn't i couldn't find what my you know i was 17 i just no longer felt the average thing that 17 year olds worry about to be relevant or interesting i just couldn't get i just couldn't i just couldn't bring myself to care about people's boyfriend stories or what they were going to do in their gap year i just i just it seemed so completely unimportant and so I think that became quite difficult but of course because we lived in this pub I spent most of my time that I wasn't at the hospital just hanging around with our customers I mean that did mean I think I I did develop quite a raging drink problem but again it didn't particularly occur to me I was sort of measuring myself against the yardstick of our customers which I can see now it's probably not a very wise thing to do is it um, I sort of thought, oh, well, you know, I drink a bit too much, but, you know, so does everybody else. Again, not really clocking. I wasn't measuring against myself against other 17 or 18-year-olds. I was measuring myself against people who spend all day and every day in the pub. <laughs> yeah, so but I feel very grateful for the pub because I think that they, there was a certain extent to which I had to put on an act because I had to, you know, I was working behind the bar and our customers needed to have a nice time and, and I couldn't be miserable 
behind the bar, so I had to put on an act. But I think that was probably a good thing. I think that in putting on, at least it meant I functioned in some way. At least it meant I had some friendships, maybe even if they weren't particularly genuine. And I, I think that without the pub, I think I just would have become very insular and, you know, maybe like never left home apart from going to hospital or something. So I think it was a very good, I think that was a very good thing. And I remember the pub and everybody in it extremely fondly. Even though I also think, you know, like, how did nobody notice, you know, over the next few years, how did nobody notice that I was sort of, well, sort of raving mad, really, and nobody did notice. But then it was the 1990s, and it was in Yorkshire, and I don't think, I think people would have, you know, suggesting people have therapy just wasn't something anybody did. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You've already mentioned that, you know, Matthew was in the the permanent vegetative state for for eight years. There comes a point in the story where your perspective changes and you do start to think that it would be better off if if he wasn't alive. And then obviously there's a period of time after that before also the steps start to be taken into place. So let's talk about that period where you change your mind and what happened after. Yeah, so I think... So I realise now that I think after a couple of years, I realised that he was, I accepted he wasn't getting better. And then I entered a a period of thinking that that was okay and we would love this new person in a a different way. And I started in my head thinking of them as two different people. And then I went to France for a year as part of my degree, which I didn't really want to go, but I equally couldn't quite work out how to get out of it. So I, I think actually going seemed less difficult than not going and I went to France and I was so utterly lonely and miserable and I so longed to get home and then the Christmas one I went home so this would have been four and a half years after the accident and he lived at home then he'd lived at home since about nine months after the accident because you know the hospital didn't really want him and well they said that he couldn't really go anywhere to be rehabilitated because there wasn't anything to build any rehabilitation on so he lived at home and we built a bungalow extension and I walked into the bungalow and I came back from France and I saw him and some one of the, there were lots of people that would come in for bits of time to look after him and one of them was kind of kneeling and massaging his feet. Because when a body doesn't move, you spend most of your time massaging bits of them so that they don't get more, it's called spasticity, the body sort of clenches up. So you spend a lot of time, you know, just sitting with them and, so somebody was massaging his feet and I came in and I just saw him and with the distance I just saw, you know, he wasn't he wasn't massy, he was just this poor, pitiful creature, this terribly brain-damaged creature. And I just saw that it was really wrong and that it was really wrong and that he wouldn't want to be like this, he wouldn't want to be alive like this. Um, but of course I didn't know what to do with this new knowledge. I didn't talk to my parents about it. I went back to France and then it was, and, and and again, so in France, of course, I didn't have the distraction of the pub, so I had a couple of friends, but mainly I just got very drunk on my own in my little studio flat and didn't really go anywhere. And I'd become so nervous and closed in, I found speaking French very difficult, so, and nobody, I was going to this language school, but nobody really noticed whether you went or not, so most of the time I just didn't go. And then things changed a lot, actually, because I met some English boys in a car park who saw my number plates and just decided to make friends with me, and that I was a lot less miserable and lonely after that. But it was all pretty awful, and then by the time, by the end of the summer, I just thought I I didn't want to go home, actually. I wanted to run away somewhere, 
And then I thought, now I've got to go home and I've got to try and talk to mum and dad about it. And then actually when I got home, it was a lot easier than I thought because my mum just looked like she was about to fall over. She looked so ill and so old and she was so thin and it was just so sad. And I think that it enabled me to realise that that I really had to speak up kind of for everybody. So I talked to my dad about it first and then we all talked about it. And then a while after that, my mum agreed that we should try to find a nursing home for Maggie to go in a nursing home. She realised that she couldn't carry on looking after him at home. It's really, like when I remember that, it just makes me feel incredibly sad. I feel so sad for all those people. It was just such an awful, awful, horrible thing. And I still hate, I hate that we put Matthew in the nursing home, even though I think it was the right thing to do. I still hate it. And that's, I think, one of the problems with this condition is that even though you, even though you don't believe that, that there is really anything there, or even though you don't believe there's any essence of the person, you can't not care about what happens to them. And I think that's a very hard thing. I certainly it's someone a while ago, and I said it's the difference between, you know, you might think someone doesn't, hear the music but it's a different stream that and stopping playing it for them and so I think it's that but of course it's, it's everything because actually it's a huge piece of work looking after a six foot four person in a vegetative state and you still want to believe that there are people that are doing that care and are being kind to him on a day-to-day basis that's right like I could never have not cared and I think it's very because of course it does happen people stop and I stopped visiting because I just couldn't bear it anymore. But I could have never not cared. But brilliantly, there's a there's a wonderful nursing home in our village, and we knew the family that owned it, and we knew quite a lot of people that worked there. And they didn't have a vacancy, but they said they would save their first vacancy for us. And so that was excellent. And then we got um, there's a wonderful lady called Sue, who was a friend of ours and a customer at the pub, and she'd been looking after Matty since he'd come home. And so she went in every day as well she'd go in for a sort of extra time and my mum visited but my dad and I couldn't bear it anymore but yes I could never have not cared about his well-being or cared about where he was and of course having been in hospital you know having seen other people in vegetative states not being looked after properly it wasn't unreasonable and unlogical because when people can't ask for anything for themselves obviously they, they get ignored and there's lots of other things going on and once you've, after that, once you all come to the decision that you want to go down the path of ending Matthew's situation, let's talk about how that works. Obviously, there's a legal aspect to it as well. Yes, yeah, so that, and the first time it happened was with Tony Bland, who was um, injured at Hillsborough. So his case was the first case where somebody in a persistent vegetative state was allowed to die. And he was the first case, and Matthew, I think, was the 12th. And I said to my dad, I think we should do that. And then we sort of mentioned it to my mum and she said, I'm just not ready yet. So I think it was about another year after Matty going into the nursing home that she realised that actually she did think it would be the best thing for him. It's obviously an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's a terrible thing to do, to desire the death of someone that you love. And I, I do think it was probably easier for me as Matty's sister. Though easier is just the wrong word. I don't know, more possible, less horrendously awful. I think it was a bit easier for me as Matty's sister than uh, than as his mother, I think. Because the whole thing is just extremely unnatural. And I've worried about this over the years and suffered for it over the years, that it just seems such a terrible thing to want someone to die. But what I really clearly see now is that it's the it's the condition that's unnatural. So it's this fact of being able to keep people alive when they should have died that's the unnatural thing, not then 
the response to it because we just put in we just get put in situations now that our little our little cave people brains can't tolerate I think we just you know we were never equipped or built were we to cope with this situation morally or ethically or emotionally so it took a long time and then the court took a long time the process lots of people would come and see Matty and would examine him I must say everybody through it was brilliant we, we were never in any way we were only ever treated courteously and they were respectful of Matty and all of us I think so then eventually almost exactly eight years after his accident the court granted that his nutrition and hydration should be redrawn. And then that's the extra gruesome bit. Once the court agrees that he'll be better off dead, the only legal way to do it is to take his feeding tube out and wait for him to die. And again, I think that is that is just awful. And it's very difficult because it's a difficult thing to talk about because obviously People worry that if you focus too much on how awful the process currently is, that people will less likely to for it to happen at all. So I definitely, if I was choosing for my brother, if I was choosing for anybody in that pitiful state, I think it is much better for them to have their life ended by their feeding tube being taken out than to just to continue to exist in a sort of a pitiful half-life. But I also think it's much better. I see the le- the legal point is that it has to be a withdrawal of treatment rather than an intervention. But again, given that the, I think we just have to realise that our capabilities, things we're now capable of means we need to rethink some of the ethics and some of the morals that surround it. Because I just do, I think of morphine injection or, you know, whatever. There are lots of kinder ways to do it. And it is quite incredible, I think, that obviously you wouldn't treat a pet like we treat these people. You know, we're actually kinder to people on death row than we are to these people but it's another awful thing it's another thing I just still feel well I'm always making progress but I just still feel terrible of course once that's done that's not it you know there's no sort of pat closure as there would be on the tv not only have you got to then go through a grieving process but you also you, you feel guilty about the act as well I do I still feel I know I shouldn't but I still feel I feel incredibly guilty that Matty went to the nursing home on his own. I feel really guilty about the fact that it took him 13 days to die. And, you know, I also feel really guilty, although I'm glad. I'm so, so glad. I can't tell you how glad I am that there was a legal process and that we followed that process and we did do it. So I feel really glad that there was no taking of the law into our own hands. But I think I also, as a sister... I still really feel I should have done it for myself much earlier. I still, I still really think that when I came back from France and saw it clearly, I should have just worked out how to kill him. And I know that would be a very wrong thing. I know that would be worse. I mean, it's not like I'm entirely sane now, but I know I would be in a much worse situation mentally if I had done something like that. So, so I don't really regret it, but I still struggle with all those things because I just think they're incredibly, they're incredibly difficult things to work with, which is back to the point of, you know, just the base, obviously, you know, thou shalt not kill. But the whole point is we've just, we've made all these announcements, we've made all these advancements now that sort of render our morality a bit out of date. So I do definitely, I feel maybe the better thing to do, like the more sisterly thing to do, would have been the thing that would run counter to how we morally think you should behave. So, so yes, I le- I'm left with all of those things and also just the you know having to 
borne witness to it, having to see the most person I most loved alive in that state, having to watch my parents suffer through it and age. And Matty's friends as well, actually, because, you know, none of them were particularly unscathed. And because of writing the book, I'm in touch with them for the first time in years. And I see again what, what, what an effect it's had on some of them. So it really is a terribly cruel thing. Um, it's just a terribly cruel situation for people to be in, for everyone to be in. Henry Marsh is a neurosurgeon. He's written a very brilliant book called Do No Harm. talks about this and he talks about the collateral damage that happens with families. That helps me to see that's really what I am, I suppose, sort of collateral damage. Um, I feel like a case study. That's, I think, my way to be useful. I offer myself as a case study of what happens to a bright, happy 17-year-old if you make her live through that. And I think I think that's a really key point you've just said there. I mean, again, people thinking of, of how this story would have been played out on telly, I think people might pick up this book thinking it's got to be some sort of redemptive story. And, it's, and it is a story of you not coming to terms with Matthew's death over a course of decades. But then you have written this book, and now you're having to talk about this book repeatedly to people like me to publicise it. So how... I mean, again, it's an obvious question, but has writing it and doing that helped? I think um, I think the writing of it has definitely helped because I didn't actually, I didn't understand, I wouldn't have been able to have this conversation two years ago, partly because I couldn't talk about it at, I mean, nobody in my life even knew I'd had a brother. I just couldn't bear to go anywhere near the subject. But equally, I wouldn't have seen it so clearly. I didn't see it so clearly. I didn't understand these things. So writing is a magical thing, really. It's a process by which you find things out. So I'm actually I'm able to be a lot kinder to myself than I used to be because I'm able to see. It doesn't stop me feeling guilt, but I can I can sort of see why I do. I understand it a lot better. What I really love, what does make me feel like there is meaning and purpose to me and to my life, is that I do get letters from people who've been in a, you know, who've witnessed a relative in a similar situation, and who have felt a lot of the same things I do, and they've said what a great relief it is to read of someone else's experience. So that makes me feel, um, if I can do somebody a bit of, you know, be a little bit helpful, then that does... I think it's a great thing to feel useful, actually. I think about this quite a lot, about what makes... How can you how can you try to feel better? Um, and I think feeling useful is quite a key thing. So I do feel a bit useful. And then I also like... I hear from lots of medics and lawyers who are using my book. And again, I think that's... That's good, I think, to have been useful. And then I did um, a question that freaked me out quite a lot, actually, was people would say to me, well, actually, they'd say to me, like, oh, Matty would be really proud of you. And I couldn't quite get my head around that. I'd think, like, well, where is he being proud? I, I, I don't know. And then the whole thing of, um, obviously, what happened to him was so enormous. I've always found it difficult to think that anything that happens to me is particularly relevant by comparison. But it did occur to me, when doctors started saying how useful the book was, then I thought, actually, Matty would be proud. I could sort of imagine him saying, I could imagine him saying, like, you know, well, thank heavens you finally realised what you're supposed to be doing, which is making sure that it's less likely that other people have to lie around in this terrible state for years and years. Because that's the really... When I, I find it sad when I get letters from people whose relatives are still alive in this condition. They're kind of asking me for advice about what to do. Because it's one of those things that's fairly rare there's not really very good processes for getting help and advice so 
and I just feel it, I just, it's very difficult to think of other people stuck in this situation. But then that is only going to increase. I think that that's why this is such a big deal. We've we've reached this pivotal point where we're able to keep people alive way beyond what we ever would have thought ourselves capable of. And I think we probably have to do some kind of fronting up to the ethical and moral dilemmas. Just one more thing then before we finish. What does it mean for the book to be shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? Well, I am unbelievably delighted. I'm so pleased and thrilled. And it's interesting, actually, because writing a book is a very exposing thing. And I think one of the ways to try to stay sane around it is you kind of slightly have to try to detach a bit from external validation. You know, you have to think, well, I've written a book. I'm proud of the book. What happens next sort of doesn't matter. But I must say, I found up with this. I'm very, very pleased with this external validation. <laughs> I really, I really love it. I feel so honoured. I've always admired this prize, and I do feel incredibly honoured. And I do think, as much as I can get my head around it, I do think Matty would be incredibly proud. And um, I just, yeah, I just do feel, I feel very different about it. Actually, I feel like, um, well, it, it feels that his experience and my experience has, in some way, been acknowledged. I suppose, and that feels. That does feel really special. So I've been talking to Cathy Rentenbrink about her book, The Last Act of Love, uh, which is out now from Picador. Cathy, thank you so much for sharing it with us. That's a great pleasure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you.
I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Alex Phoebe is a writer and academic. He is the co-founder and co-director of the annual Greenwich Book Festival and is the programme leader of the University of Greenwich's creative writing programmes. His first novel, Grace, was published in 2009 and his latest novel, Playthings, is shortlisted for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Alex, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi. Tell us how you would describe Playthings, first of all. I always uh, kind of find myself shying away from describing it because I worry that if I give some kind of description of it, people will take that as definitive. I guess it's a book about someone. It's a book about um, Daniel Paul Schreiber, um, a German judge from the 19th century uh, who wrote a very famous memoir, Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. Uh, and it follows his final years when he die, was dying in a, an asylum in what used to be called East Germany near Leipzig. And it looks back, I think, at the level of a plot onto his life, uh, his history, uh, and his, the kind of his relationship with his family. Tell us more about Daniel Paul Schreiber then. So who was he? He uh, was a judge for a long period of his life who suffered a series of nervous illnesses, as he called them, uh, in which he hallucinated a very bizarre relationship with God, um, he believed that um, through the excitation of his nerves, largely brought about by his, in his inability to sleep uh, and becoming overexcited during the night, that he was drawing God to him by the power of the excitation of his nerves for one reason or another. It's a very long and complicated series of delusions. He was the only person remaining on the earth uh, and that everybody around him was fleetingly improvised by God uh, to convince him that the world had people and to test whether he was insane or not. He had a very difficult life. He had several um, spells in asylums uh, and eventually uh, around 1900 lost and beforehand lost um, control over his affairs entirely. And he wrote Memoirs of My Nervous Illness uh, as a way of getting himself released from the asylum that he found himself in and uh, released from the tutelage of the German state who had taken control of his affairs. His Illness also manifested itself in a sort of sexual confusion as well, which we'll talk a little bit later on about the sort of contrast of his of his illness with the tightly regulated bourgeois life that he was living anyway. But this this the sort of sexual aspect of it as well is particularly interesting, I think. So tell us about that. He believed he was being converted into a woman or unmanned. Uh, which is a kind of more German way of saying it, that uh, God was turning him into a woman uh, in order that he could thereby bear children uh, and repopulate this kind of decimated earth. No one living it anymore, and he was going to become the mother of a new race of children. He was, by his own account, a transvestite. During periods of his life, he felt that wearing uh, women's clothes was uh, something that he was obliged to do in order to convince God that he was a woman uh, and thereby alleviate the miracles God was enacting against him to convert him into a woman. Um, Freud, uh, in his looking at the case, uh, although he never met Schreber, uh, never spoke to him and didn't treat him, did look at his memoirs and, and, and kind of tried to analyse them. And he took these delusions and the paranoid aspect of the delusions as, a, as a, an indication of repressed homosexuality. But that's something I think that Schreber certainly would have disavowed uh, had he been asked um, and I think it's a moot point at the least <laughs> part of the reasons why I wrote Playthings or part of the reasons that Playthings is written in the way that it is written uh, is to address what I think 
are over, things that have been overlooked in people's readings of Schreber's life and, and his illness. And largely, I don't, it's not that I don't subscribe to those ideas. I think they're you know, perfectly valid as far as they go. But given that it's already been spoken about at great length, Playthings tries to address absences, I think, in the, in the readings of, of Schreber's life and his case. Um, one of which I think is a failure for people to understand the extent to which women figured in his life. Um, Freud's argument largely figures out his mother, for example. Uh, Freud argues that um, Schreiber's paranoia is a defensive reaction against his, his love, his desire for his father. But he ignores Schreiber's mother's role. He ignores Schreiber's wife's role, for that matter. And specifically, he ignores the role of, of Schreiber's um, difficulty in having children in his illness. Schreiber's wife suffered uh, multiple miscarriages and uh, had stillborn children. Some of these miscarriages, some of these stillbirths, were, seemed to me um, likely to have provoked his illness in various ways. Um, particularly, perhaps, we might argue, we might at least consider the idea that his desire to become a woman and his desire to populate the world with children may have been in response to his own failure to continue his own line. For example, Schreber came from a very long line of Schrebers, of which he was the last. Um, his brother killed himself before he could have children, and Schreber was the only surviving male Schreber of that line. Now, he describes his illness as a, a nervous illness but what how would we describe it now i guess i mean it depends that's contested too if you look across the the readings uh, psychoanalytically and psychiatrically there are various uh, kind of readings of what he had um some people wouldn't call it a nervous illness or a psychotic illness at all but more a kind of mood disorder but generally we'd go along the lines that it used to be called paranoia and now is called schizophrenia so the argument would be that um Schreber suffered schizophrenic delusions uh, and his nervous illness in that sense was, was uh, schizophrenia, as we'd now call it. And that book he wrote, Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, what was the significance of that? Um, it became significant in all sorts of ways. It was published in a very short run to start off with, and Schreber's family tried to destroy it. One of Schreber's sister's husbands tried to buy up copies and burn them, but unsuccessfully and eventually found its way to Freud. <laughs> Uh, and by various circuitous routes to um, psychiatric communities across the world. Once Freud had published his paper on it, and it was taken up by the wider community of people interested in psychoanalysis, it kind of proliferated across the world in all sorts of different ways. Um, when it eventually hit English publication in the 1950s, uh, when it was translated, um, lots of American psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, social theorists, philosophers, psychologists, sociologists um, looked at Schreber's delusions uh, and figured them in all sorts of different ways. There's almost not a major writer of the 20th century who didn't write on Schreber at some point. By the time he got to the 1970s and 1980s, it, it just kind of blossomed all over the place. There were Carol Churchill, the playwright, for example, did a play of Schreber's nervous illness. Um, there was a muted but never filmed screenplay written by Anthony Burgess, for example. Anthony Burgess met with Burt Lancaster to discuss the possibility of making a film on Schreber's life. At the same time, you might remember Sybil, the film Sybil with Sally Fields. Um, Sybil was a very popular case of was kind of uh, euphemistically known as multiple personality disorder. And around that time, people were interested in psychosis in general. And Schreber had been picked up by people who had interesting things to say about um, the family and how it causes mental illness. And Schreber's life kind of got picked up by them. There was a, a huge 
kind of effort to write Schreiber's father into Schreiber's story. Schreiber's father was a kind of child psychologist and child-rearing expert. The German 19th century and people read into his child-rearing manuals and to his kind of disciplinary regime, uh, certain kind of psychogenic features that were useful in, to them in describing how disciplinarian regimes in general cause psychosis and, and how particularly masculine forms of discipline in the family is li- are likely to lead to mental illnesses. So by the time we get to now, Schreber has been involved in all sorts of scientific and social and sociological, psychological fields. Bearing that in mind, and you've mentioned the, the fictional accounts, there are a few fictional accounts of him there as well. What more was there to add? Why did you want to write about him? Why did you bother? Um, I wonder, uh, <laughs> because I think I had something different to say, I guess. There are, have been a couple of novels written in Europe about Schreber, um, but largely it's because there's such a, a complicated mix of stuff going on that it makes it a, an interesting place to start to write as a novelist. There are very few characters that you could find, fictional or real, that have such currency and such a wide field of human knowledge. There's all sorts of ways that you can um, insert like interesting things that you might have to say about the human condition in general and Schreiber in particular into all sorts of different disciplines using him that perhaps wouldn't be available to any other field. I mean, it had occurred to me to fictionalise him. There was one point during the process of getting it published when it didn't look like it was going to get published. The route to publication for lots of people is, is quite difficult and this book, no, not uh, any less than most. And there was a time when I thought I might anglicise it, you know, and take uh, the kind of generic features of Schreber, um, his judgeness, for example, and his, his personality and use those in an English setting instead. But so much gets lost, I think. My Schreber, I don't don't write him as something that is definitive. I don't think he is the Schreber as I've written him is the Schreber. I don't think I've found Schreber's voice. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly about the real Schreber, but I can like use whatever it is I want to say about Schreber to intervene in all of these different fields uh, one way or another, whether I'm welcome there or not. Well, I was, I was going to add, I mean, this is obviously a novel. You've just said about the idea of fictionalising him in terms of, you know, presumably giving him a different name, anglicising him. But obviously this is a novel, so it's a fictionalised account anyway. So let's talk about that process, about fictionalising a real historical character. Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a difficult line to follow. I mean, given that you've written about someone who was real, there is an obligation, I guess, to the truth in some ways, it's hard to justify areas where, for example, I've moved away from the real one way or another, except to say that it is avowedly fictional. It's not representing itself as the real. Um, it does use some accounts. It uses some of, of Schreber's own writing. It uses accounts about Schreber. It uses his family's work, his remembrances of him. It uses secondary sources um, in order to patch a picture together, but it also diverges from them in, in other ways too. You know, it is a, I mean, difficult's not the right word, but it's certainly interesting trying to weave your way through this kind of territory as a writer. Because my first novel was, wasn't about anybody real. It was about real things. So I didn't really have that issue. Uh, but that process of conversion from something real to something fictional, I'm not sure is, is as much of a big deal as everybody imagines. I think that even when you're writing about someone uh, in a non-fictional way, you're still making a conversion. You're still kind of changing things and you're still 
reading and, and kind of failing to read things accurately. And fiction, I think, has a, if it has a, a claim to truth of any type, it's of a different type of truth. It might have a, a more generic kind of appeal to our understanding of human psychology or, or narrative or just, or just story that nonfiction doesn't have. I think another thing to add there in terms of the, you know, the fictionalisation of him, the sort of distance from him, is that the novel itself... It feels like a modernist novel of the early 20th century. It feels like, in some places, a late Victorian novel, like of his time. So it feels like a novel that would have been written at the time when perhaps not even Schraber, but certainly Freud was around and working. So is that, would that be correct? Is that, was that a deliberate stylistic choice? Uh, yeah, I mean, correct. I mean, you could certainly make that argument. And I think it's, it's something that I, yes, you're right. That, that is, that's something that I tried to do, right? I tried to give it that sense that it was, it was coming out of the literature of that period. I mean, not so much to write a pastiche of it, but to bear that kind of writing in mind when I was doing the writing. It, it began, the whole process of it began in a much less kind of uh, sustainable way by trying just to continue the writing of the memoirs. Right? The memoirs are written in a particular way, in a particular style. And it quickly became obvious that that was going to be redundant one way or another, because it just wouldn't have done anything interesting or new. So what some of the stylistic choices are inherited from the type of writing that was around at Schreiber's time, some of it from Schreiber's own style, and some of it from a particular kind of German sensibility when it comes to sentence structuring, I guess. Because I was enmeshed a lot in, in writing in different languages while I was researching and, and writing this. Um, I didn't do anything as, as heavy as, as pastiche, I hope. Um, it's more kind of informed and, and kind of method than that. I was enmeshed in a lot of the writing of that period. Uh, and uh, it has infused and kind of flavoured the writing of playthings. I'm Emily Mayhew. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I also think that, you know, that idea of it being a, a modernist novel is important in terms of how you've chosen to represent madness on the page. Yeah, well, that's, there's a definite formal obligation when you're dealing with fractured ways of being in the world, right, which I think that modernism did. Right. And consequently, that when you come to deal with people who aren't self-avowedly sane, don't have the same kind of ways of dealing with the world available to them, it will often read as in the same way that modernist novels tended to read, because modernist novels had this, this kind of focus on, on psychology and, and on the representation of the human mind. Uh, consequently, if you're going to deal with someone who has differences of approach in that way, uh, it's easy to move towards modernism as a kind of stylistic choice i think it would be it's not something that i'd kind of pin the success or otherwise of playthings on right in terms of its writing i don't think my aim was to pretend to be beckett or <laughs> to have done something similar to early modernist experimentation certainly it's, it does something different but i think it may just go with the territory i think the way in which you deal with with fractured narratives in general will tend to make you modernist seeming and one of the ways in which you have that fractured narrative is that you you sort of mess around with time perception as well and that's manifested again through the different the different episodes of of Schreiber's illness sure i mean i think the, the one of the things that i really wanted to do was to give the reader a sense of the kind of experience that someone has when they've become unanchored from the real so, and one of the ways that you can do that is to play with people's understanding of narrative progression. We're all very used to things happening in linear A, B, C 
progress uh, and consequently when things appear to be doing that and then turn out not to have done that we get a kind of sense of disjunction sense of uncomfortableness that may mirror and it seems to me does mirror um, that sense of being unhinged from the world that people who are ill sometimes have uh, or if you're feverish uh, or if you're in some other way going through stress for those things not to make 100% sense while seeming that they ought to I think is, is something that I try to, to do. Also, I mean, I think I just let the writing do itself to a certain extent. If you begin a scene uh, and then allow it to follow its own, its own kind of logic, uh, even if that logic means that you're no longer following a straight linear time frame, then you can get effects on the reader that might mirror the effects that one might have from experiencing something like paranoia. An obvious thing to have done when, we're, when you're writing a, a novel about ostensibly about somebody's mind and what happens in that mind would have been for it to be in the first person you've not done that it's in the third person which distances is a little bit from Schreiber but that seems appropriate in the fact that that's how he relates to everybody else so in the book's called playthings and that's how he sees other people let's tell us what he means by that yeah I mean I the the change in person I think is an important one I mean I one of the major main problems ethically, I think, um, with a book like Playthings is that if you try and to represent it as, as, a, as the truth of somebody, uh, then you get yourself in, in trouble because it's, it's not. I wouldn't want to claim to do that. So that it is an ethical choice, I think, or a moral choice in the first instance, not to try and represent myself as Schreiber. And also, I think it becomes easier for us to invest in, in that character um, and to, to experience the things that I say Schreber is experiencing in the book, if you're allowed that one remove, because to be too closely in there is sometimes strains credulity a little bit. If one is always being told, I am doing this, I am doing that, you know, your immediate response in the first person is, well, no, I'm not. I'm sat reading a book. Uh, and consequently, it becomes difficult to engage. And I think if, if you skillfully use the third person, you can get past that kind of objection as to what you are doing, uh, and still maintain that kind of closeness. Um, Schreiber himself, I think, objectified not only his own experiences, but the experiences of everybody around him. And I think it's, it's kind of, it runs authentically with that sense. He treated his own life and his own illness in his memoirs with scientific objectiveness. I mean, he looked at its objectivity, and he looked at his illness and his symptoms uh, with a dispassionate eye, largely because he believed very strongly, it seems, that these things were true and of scientific interest. He believed he had privileged access to our understanding of God and, and the afterlife, and consequently looked at himself, took himself as an object of, of study, which I think allows um, us to do the same. So whereas Schreber, the man, had an existence that is, is kind of close to us, we can at least use, you know, preaching through his, his work, uh, and if we you know, carefully negotiate that territory, we can perhaps say things sensibly about him, in fiction even. I wanted to talk about Schreiber's relationship with his wife in the novel. As we sort of also already mentioned earlier on, one of the themes of the novel is this disjuncture between his madness and the sort of staid bourgeois life of a German judge in the late 19th century. So how is that represented in his, in his relationship with his wife? Well... I'm um, not wishing to give the game away too much, but Schreber wants to, to find his wife, right? I think Schreber's wife and bourgeois existence, um, and for all of us, um, whether we're bourgeois or not, but existence in general of a comfortable familial life can be an anchor 
right, that allows you to, to exist in the world in ways that are sustainable. So we can sit and, and, and do the things that we need to do on a daily basis. And I think as Schreber loses, when Schreber's wife has a stroke, something that happens early on in the book, that stress can cause you to lose contact with the world. And then uh, Zabina becomes for Schreber a kind of, I don't know, an emblem of sanity and wellness and being able to exist in the world without, without losing track of, of the real. And that's something that he constantly is calling out for that goes across the board for just the, the small everyday domestic things that we come to rely on in the world like our, our meals and our houses and our clothes and the objects that surround us and the people that surround us and the relationships we have with people who we love and I think those are the things that Zabina stands for which Schreber throughout the book as much as at a narrative level is constantly trying to regain that's his wife who he believes holds the key to his sanity and to his continuing life and this is something that i think you know is not my idea this is something that's that's taken from schreber too he he wrote his memoirs arguably um if you're going to believe some of the prefaces that he wrote um as a means of explaining his illness to his wife uh, and it's you know worth noting that his wife held control over his legal legal affairs and property while he was in, in an asylum it's also worth noticing you know if you read the medical notes at least that his wife didn't visit him during his last period of uh, illness. And to a certain extent, Playthings is about what happens when we become forsaken by uh, the people who love us and how that can undermine your ability to live in the world. And once that's happened, once he's, he's basically adrift in the asylum, there are other relationships in the book. The doctor, Rosler, and, and this sort of sinister orderly Muller, or it seems sinister certainly to Schreber. So what do they represent to him? For him, I think the lines out of the asylum to a certain extent. I mean, in terms of the book, they represent, you know, if we can look at it allegorically or symbolically, uh, you know, authority in various ways. But they're also, it gets quite complicated because they're playing off different um, readings of, of Schreber's life and his case through the 20th century too. You could, if you wanted to get tricksy about it, look at um, the psychiatric relationship between the doctor and the patient in the book and, and kind of measure it against various different approaches as they've taken place um, in the 20th century. I mean, at the level of story, Rosler is, is a character who holds the key to Schreber's release uh, one way or the other. It's up to him, as it was in real life, to determine whether... Schreber gets to go home. Uh, Muller is a kind of more, is a complicated figure too. I mean, Schreber throughout his life had issues, shall we say, with with working class people. He was always of the opinion that they were trying to get him in various different ways, uh, including the orderlies that he mentions in in Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, who tend to beat him and uh, tease him. And also, if we if we're going to look at it um, in a in a kind of very in depth way, um, uh, Muller is an inheritance from uh, Anthony Burgess's screenplay. I mean, it's not the same character, but it's it's making references to a character, not the same character, just in case the Burgess estate are listening. Uh, <laughs> not the same character at all, but who appears in other areas and he kind of allows us to see Schreiber's relationship perhaps with the with the real through his this kind of paranoid lens as is the relationship with Alexander Zilberschlag the mysterious Jew throughout the novel and I think that's a way of allowing us to allowing me to play through class and and racial kind of issues as they relate to Schreiber and the Schreiber case in the 20th century. 
Yeah, I was going to say if we if we sort of develop those symbolic ideas further, you you sort of look at that tumultuous politics of the early early twentieth century and the rise of anti-Semitism and fascism in Germany as well. Yeah, I mean, if that's again something that has been said of of Schreber and Schreber's case. There's a really good book by Santner, My Own Private Germany, uh, that goes into you know how much the Schreber case is a kind of echo chamber of German and European kind of social and political concerns in the 20th century, particularly as they relate to paranoia and and, and the paranoid relationship with other people. And the argument being roughly that National Socialism had a kind of uh, psychotic relationship with the real of its own, which is roughly paranoid, uh, and that the, the sense of paranoid defensiveness against people, the unknown, the other, is, is played out uh, across the 20th century and is played out now, I mean, in our paranoid reactions, for example, to uh, refugees from states that we aren't familiar with. Uh, our paranoid relationships with all of those things that we fear and aren't 100% capable of, of uh, assimilating into whatever culture we imagine is ours. And I think you can use Schreber, you can look at playthings as a kind of allegorical warning, I guess, against misreading things. Well, we know where the history of the 20th century went. What happened to the, uh, the real-life Schreber in the end? He died alone in, in the asylum. Oh, well, <laughs> rather than end the interview on that down point, just finally, let's talk about what does it mean for you in the book to be shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? It's really good. Um, it's an, a, an excellent thing. I hope it'll, it'll mean that more people read it than otherwise would have done. Uh, it's nice to be recognised by people outside the academic world and outside the strictly literary world too. It's nice for to see the book taking into places where I'm surprised to see it go. I mean, I was surprised to see it go. It was reviewed in The Lancet, for example, which I thought was excellent. It's nice to see uh, The Lancet picking up on things and it was reviewed in The New Scientist um, and uh, people have taken it into fields where I didn't think it was going to end up I thought it would probably have a kind of uh, limited existence amongst people with you know very rarefied literary tastes of one type or another or people who liked you know modernist experimentation or people who'd already heard of Schreber and 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 kind of wanted to read more about his case study so the welcome prize is getting it out to an audience uh, a much wider audience which is nice on a purely practical level it's good fun to to get out and, and talk to people like you uh, and to to attend events there's a 5 by 15 event and and hopefully it'll bring more people to the festival which i noticed you mentioned <laughs> at the beginning may the 27th and the 28th at university of greenwich uh, literary festival where i'll be um, talking about playthings with Anaconda Schofield, for example, who you may have heard of, who writes on Madness too. So yeah, it's great. It's, it's really nice for me. Uh, and I hope it does well for the book and for Galley Beggar Press. I think Galley Beggar Press deserve successes for their books. They take risks on books that um, other publishers wouldn't take risks on, and they take risks on books that are, are not easy to pigeonhole, which I think makes them difficult to sell. And I hope the Welcome Prize nomination and uh, anything else that comes along this year does well for them. So I've been talking to Alex Phoebe. We've been talking about his novel Playthings, which, as Alex mentioned, is published by Galley Beggar Press and is shortlisted for the 2016 Welcome Book Prize. Alex, thank you so much for sharing it with us. You're welcome. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 